In a world of podcasts about movies, sci-fi, TV, and podcasts about sci-fi, TV, and movies, two women chose to add their voices to the fray. Two sisters. One woman was willing to go to any length to explain away plot holes and bad pacing. I don't think, first of all, much like the entirety of this film, I don't think we're supposed to ask a lot of questions. The other, though, had no such sympathies. Oh, I hate it. I hate it. Together, they joined forces to highlight the good, the bad, and the truly bizarre. This is See You Next Week in Space. Well, it's another week. We're here at See You Next Week in Space. Um, It is a real... I always get a true joy out of doing any of our, um, let's say, like ongoing uh, intermittent series about Arnold Schwarzenegger films. (laughs) Um, And I had been sitting on this one for a bit of a while because... This one is one that I do and have watched for myself just for fun. Like, this is not... Really? Um, yes. Uh, I find this mm. movie quite um, amazing, hilarious. I don't know what you'd... Whoa, I don't know how I would describe it. Um, oh, but wow. I quite like it in many ways. Mm. Um, but the question I wanted to ask you, Amy... Uh, to like kick things off because this is one mm-hmm. of the central plot points to the movie. Uh-oh. Is <laughs> I might not know it. Then. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, I think uh, this one. There's no way you could have missed this element of the film. Um, so no, don't be afraid. I promise. I promise. I'm literally scared because I, if someone asked, <laughs> if someone asked me to give a summary of this movie like without you telling me what happened, I might struggle. That's fair. That's totally fair. But so my question is, do you think that you are someone who is good at taking vacations, going on vacation? (laughs) Is that something that you would say you excel at or struggle with? Hmm. Uh, I would say I excel at it. I mean, that... It's an interesting way to phrase that question, too, I feel like, because I love a vacation and I always want to be on one rather than, like, working and doing, like, the daily grind. But I don't know that I'm, like, very fun when I'm on a vacation. (laughs) I'm not, like, a party animal, like, or I don't know. I'm not sure. I enjoy a vacation. Yes. Is that the question? Or not really the question, but. No. But, so I will put it in this way. So I often describe myself at bad at taking vacations, not because once I'm on vacation, I can't relax. I'm quite good at uh-huh. that part of it. Uh-huh. But what I am bad at is one, thinking ahead of time to be like, oh. when would I like to take a vacation? Yes. And then okay. have not only doing that bit, but then being like, and now I ask for the time I'm off going of work. To do it. Okay. And then mm-hmm. I ask for the time off of work. And then it's like, well, now you need to plan 
what you're going to do trip. with that time. And Got it. And at every phase of that journey that I just described, I'm yeah. pretty bad at it. <laughs> like, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because the thing about, I, I guess, like, if I were a single person, I think I would be bad at that, yes. Um, I think I happen to be with someone who is a better planner than I, so it works out for me. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I'm a little bit, like, go with the flow, so if someone else is planning it, like, that's all good. If I have to be in charge of it, yes, then we do have probably a little bit of a problem. Um, yeah. So, yes, that maybe I'm not so good at it um, <laughs> now that I'm I mean, reflecting. I also think for me, part of the reason why I am like exceptionally bad at doing vacations is for like so many years I didn't have any money. So, yes, uh, it's also like if you don't have money to go anywhere, you can't go anywhere like so it kind of just takes it out of your mind in general like correct um at least for me and then oh yeah. now that I do have money and like you know a job where it's like official you put in your request on a weird database thing and then you wait and then you get <laughs> like you know like all that um but it's also that I just because my job is very um, self-directed when not teaching. I think it yeah. also gives you this sense of like, oh, well, aren't I sort of always on vacation when I'm not teaching because I can yeah. be anywhere at any time that I need to be or not be somewhere if I don't need to be there. And um, so that has given me like a false sense of rest, which is yep. not the same thing as being like, no, no, no. I've dedicated these even like four days. Like I've dedicated these yeah. four days to doing this thing, going this place, yeah. having this and time. Also, yeah, and I would say so I said that I was bad at like the planning phase. Now, I would say that Isaac not bad at, but he has a different sort of we've gotten to be more in the same like wavelength over the years but he has a different view of what a vacation is sometimes sure than me. this is a whole different uh, issue of like that's a different once okay, you're that's a different conversation once you're there what are you doing like are you yeah a person who likes to sit and be like my ideal vacation is I sit by a beach I sit by a pool I sit by a lake right. And, like, the only thing I'm really deciding is, like, where I'm going to dinner that night. And, like... What am I eating and when? <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's important yeah. to me in all yeah. vacation settings, to yeah, be honest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. But that's, like, um, all you have to think about throughout the day. Yeah. So or, like, maybe you're, like, maybe I'll go for a bike ride. Maybe I'll, sure. like, do maybe a paddle. Maybe we have a little plan here or there. Yeah. 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 But, like, it's very, like, you don't have to make a reservation. You don't have to, like, book something yeah. in advance. It's, like... The yeah. whole, the, th- the the main planning you had to do was just getting here. And now that you're here, yeah. that part's over. Just enjoy. You know? Yeah. So that's like one yeah. style of vacation. And then like there's the other style, which I guess I might kind of generically call the sightseeing vacation or the like activities yep. vacation. Yep. And while. Activities vacation. Yeah. Well, because sightseeing mm-hmm. is slightly different. Like, because sightseeing yeah, is like. Yeah. 
going to some museums. We're going to look at this statue. We're going to walk in this park. We're going to like, but like activity vacation is how I would describe at least some of what you and Isaac have done of like, we're biking from like this place to this place over this many days, or we're like spelunking in this thing or like, we're (laughs) like whatever thing it is. We literally have done those things. Yeah, totally. Yes, 100%. And I think we've, again, over the years, I think we've created a good balance of those vacations. We do have vacation. We have done vacations like that where it was full itineraries. Everything was planned literally almost down to the minute. Um, Right. And we then have also had vacations where it was a little bit more like free form. We're not really like beachy, like... uh, Caribbean vibes type mm-hmm. like we've really never done that together um I would be into it although sometimes like the thought of just like roasting in the sun also doesn't sound that appealing <laughs> to me always either like I don't know there's parts of me that it seems enjoyable but then in like practice I'm not sure yeah I mean I I am more of a one who likes um like a combo that leans more heavily on the relaxing part uh with like with like a dash of some sightseeing like that's kind of what I for vacation like Like, that's the other thing too mm -hmm. is like I do a lot of travel for work or like yeah pre-pandemic I do a lot of travel for work so like I'm like oh I know how to navigate a foreign city navigate a foreign like metro system like all that but I, I'm like, when I'm doing that, I'm at work. That's, like, why right. that happens. And so, because to me, I'm like, vacation is about <laughs> recharging and relaxing. Correct. And... Um, on our honeymoon, we literally were spelunking, but yes, got it. That, um. see, I, that's where I would draw the line. I would draw the line. First of all, because... Here's what I've learned through my uh, travels and sightseeing adventures, etc. For some reason, there's a segment of the human population that like fucking loves caves and will go into yeah. a cave, needs to see a cave, needs to like yeah. be underneath, needs to sometimes wriggle through one part on their stomach to get to the other part. And yeah. I, to that, I say no. No, thank yeah, you. I, you know what? I'm not meant to be down here. I can you know tell what? I'm not meant to be down here. Yeah. The the sad part of all of that is I 1,000% agree, and yet I've been in multiple caves. <laughs> I mean, that's like, true. I have been in multiple caves as well. This is one of the things. When you go on vacation, someone invariably is going to pitch a cave idea a cave. at some point. <laughs> And I just read a story about it, like a horrific cave situation, like in Thailand. And I'm like, I should have never like none of to be fair, none of the caves that I've gone in are like they're they've both been in the ones I can picture off the top of my head that I can remember are both were both in Iceland. They were both lava caves. They're not really ones that are like at risk for caving in or anything like that. But you also never the hell know. Right. And the thing about those ones is I remember very vividly specifically the one we went in last year you had to climb down a really deep steep set of like 
baby ass stairs yep. in the pitch ass black. And I was shaking like a leaf. Like, <laughs> I, I was like, no part of this is fun right now. Like, I I'm not feeling good about this. Yeah, it was. And then the guide person was like, oh, yeah. And before we put these stairs here, you know, this used to be a much more advanced tour where people would have to, like, repel down the walls. And I was like, wow. Never. Yeah. And the fact is, much as I, I'm, like, thinking now of the various cave things I've been brought on to do. And much as I can think like, oh, that was a nice thing. And actually there were some pretty kind of cool stuff and like whatever. Um, The fact is most of the time you get to the place where they're like, see, this is like the most impressive part. And you're like, it's still just a cave. What did I think I was getting myself into? Like, and you can't really, unless you, I mean, I know you have flashlights and everything on it, but you can't see a whole heck of a lot. Like, it's dark as hell. And then yeah. it really, truly, uh, definitely, I have, you know, you're not in there. In those types of, like, I've been on very, like, monitored type things. It's not like we were ever, like, t- checking out caves by ourselves. But, like, it's, I in- inevitably get to a part of it where I'm, like, I really hope this is over soon because... I could really use some light and some yes. fresh air. <laughs> <laughs> I need to, I mean, the unbearable weight of existence is already bad enough on the surface. <laughs> and now that I'm under the ground and I feel like the ground, like I might be coll- collapsed down onto by, like I need yeah. to get out of here. Like, yeah. uh, well, welcome everyone to see you next week in space. I'm Sarah Walsh and I'm here with my co-host and sister and vacationer extraordinaire, Amy Walsh. <laughs> And not at all. Amy, uh, why don't you tell everyone what we're talking about today and perhaps maybe give it a try to explain like why vacationing was what I started out with today. Well, I'll be honest. I will be honest. This, I, this, the, the title of this movie is ironic for me because, uh, we are, we are, we are talking about. Total Recall, which is a movie mm-hmm. from 1990, and I don't recall it, even though <laughs> I, even though I watched it yesterday. Um, Perfect. And the, I didn't really understand much of this movie. Um, I also had some like paying attention issues as always, but um, so he go, so he goes on a virtual vacation. He tries sort. to, yes. And he's, and it's to Mars. But Correct. then that's not really real. And then a whole bunch of shit happens that I didn't understand. <laughs> cool. Um, well, <laughs> uh, <laughs> let's kick off from there. And also, just, I'm just really proud for the two of us that this week we can, that I communicated clearly enough that we were to watch the 1990 version of this movie and not the 2012 version featuring Colin Farrell in the same Oh, I didn't even know that was a thing. Maybe I should have watched that one. (laughs) I I don't know that it would have helped. So the IMDb description of this movie is as follows. When a man goes in to have virtual vacation memories of the planet Mars implanted in his mind... An unexpected and harrowing series of events forces him to go to the planet for real. Or is he? Question mark. Um, 
And this, this is often a thing that typically ir- irritates and irks me when we get to the end of a movie and, like, the reveal is that it was all a dream. Um, and that doesn't seem to necessarily be the case for this movie. We can talk about it when we get to the end. Um, yeah. But this is one of those movies where the the walls between quote unquote what's really happening and what is happening in someone's mind are rather blurry. Um, and non-existent. I will say, in a movie, yeah, in a movie like that, I think that does require full focus. <laughs> Indeed, yes. And I think that. I'm not great at that. (laughs) Fair enough. Um, So some things to kick off to set the scene for what we're about to do. Um, This is another, not only is this part of our kind of ongoing Schwarzenegger love fest, we might also say (laughs) that another theme coming out of this is we, this is our third Paul Verhoeven movie. Hmm. Uh, We've done, he's done Starship Troopers and Robocop, both of which we've spoken about. Um, I could see the similarities in style between all three of these. For sure. Um, And this comes in the middle. So it's like RoboCop, this, and then Starship Troopers. Mm, mm, Um, This also, this is really combines quite a lot of things we've talked about a bit. Because again, this also is based on a short story um, called We Can Remember It For You Wholesale. uh, Published by Philip, written and published uh written by philip k dick and published in 1966 um interesting there's also a movie or not a movie a um musical i think called i can get it for you wholesale that's interesting i mean i don't think they're the same thing would be my i don't think it's the same thing but but it's very close in terms of titles i true that is true they do (laughs) you don't you don't see the word wholesale a lot in titles yeah. (laughs) yeah um but so this so this kind of goes into so so I guess how would I say this the thing that characterized the production of this movie was problems um, from start to finish and part of this began with the fact that the story that this movie is loosely based on is an extremely short short story it's only twenty three pages long. Um, and it is a bit different in terms of like the um, overall message or tone. Like, uh, I th- I'm not, from my impression, I've not read the short story. My impression is that like the short story is just about a guy who's like kind of a meek uh, civil servant who just wants to have these memories implanted, and then it's like a reflection on like how much of a bummer the future is because he'd rather just have the memories and act or like that's all he can access sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but basically that story was only enough to kind of set up the world in a sense. So it re- so what like what is most connected to Philip K. Dick's book is the first act of the movie. And hmm. the screenwriters added the whole bit where they actually go to Mars. That was like a whole thing that doesn't exist in the short story. Interesting. Yeah. Um, And it turns out the musical is, could not be any further from this story. You mean they don't go to Mars? 
They do not. It is a musical uh, that starred Barbara Streisand when it was on Broadway, and it is about a uh, someone who works in the New York City garment district in the Great Depression, and it uses, mm. utilizes traditional Jewish harmonies. Okay. Blah, blah, blah. Some other stuff. Fair so, enough. Yeah, nothing like this. No, nothing like this at all. <laughs> um, so the screenwriter... Uh, who finds this short story is a guy named Ron Chusett, um, and he bought the rights for the story in 1974 for $1,000. Um, wow. Yeah, which even in 1974 money, that would have been pretty piddly. Um, yeah. And this is in part because while Philip K. Dick is one of the go-to science fiction writers now and quite a lot of his work has been... Uh, turned into TV and movies. At the time, he was effectively a nobody. Um, so he, so Shusit was able to pick up this story for, for pretty cheap. But um, the vision that he had, as it manifested into this screen um, play, where it involved going to Mars and doing these other things that basically multiple different studios at different times were like interested in the script, but were like, we don't have the money. This is like a super special effects heavy movie. We, you know, we're not taking this on. And Mm -hmm. as each studio and like Shusit isn't the only screenwriter in the end, there are other people who are involved in the writing process at various points. Um, And so through every iteration that this kind of attempt goes through, there are also various different men cast uh, in the role of Quaid, some of whom include William Hurt, Christopher Reeve, Jeff Bridges, and Patrick Swayze. Um, Yeah. and That's a weird-ass bunch. Well, it is and it isn't because... So this movie, if we think about someone kind of meaningfully trying to start doing this in the mid-70s, that's where it's like William Hurt and Christopher Reeve. And particularly once we get into the early 80s, Christopher Reeve, and he's already playing Superman, so Mm -hmm. he would have been quite popular. As we move into like the mid to late 80s, that's where we see Jeff Bridges and Patrick Swayze becoming big box office draws. Um, and so there's all these different iterations that it's going through and nothing is really sticking. Um, I also thought it was interesting that another one, yeah, so as we move into the mid to late 80s, Jeff Bridges and Pat, Patrick Swayze would have been mm. the draws that we would expect to see. Um, mm. The other thing that I thought was interesting, another uh, character in Hollywood that we've talked about before, David Cronenberg. Um, <clears throat> he was set to direct this movie, and actually, as a result of his directing, he also did quite a lot of rewriting of the script. Um, mm. And this is kind of across the early to mid-80s. So he's probably the director that hung on to this project the longest of the ones that I was able to deduce. Um, but ultimately he ends up, uh, quitting this project because, because like the, this is like loosely based on this story and the end was really up to personal taste, I guess you could say, um, Cronenberg really disagreed with the version that the studios 
preferred. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you can believe this, the other reason he would, he quit this job is at that time, the person who had been cast as Quaid was Richard Dreyfus. Now, <laughs> I don't know that you could pick someone more diametrically different. opposed to Arnold Schwarzenegger yeah. than Richard Dreyfus. I'm not sure that it's he's like wrong for it necessarily. It's just that it would be a totally different movie. Well, it wouldn't be an action thing at all. Like it just right. simply wouldn't be. And it would I th- be a lot more about the mind aspect of it. Right. And I think um, my impression when I saw that name, I was like, that's fucking weird, Um, was not only, again, he was also a big draw in the 80s. So it it wasn't like he was like stupid in that sense. But I think that was based on, because the original story shows this kind of milk toasty man who never really does Mm -hmm. anything and never really goes anywhere. I'm like, I could see Richard Dreyfuss playing that. Um, you know, but like, needless to say, that isn't what happened. What did end up happening is that, um, you know, over the course of the eighties, Schwarzenegger's career is really igniting and moving into the stratosphere. And by the late eighties, he is like a go-to, uh, action star. And he had heard about this movie and like, you know, as it cycled through various studios and things. And so he then approached, um, I think they're called Coralco Pictures. They don't exist anymore as a production company. But he was like, listen, if you produce this movie, um, like, in exchange, I'll star in it. You produce it, (laughs) but I'll, like, I'll kind of see it through. And he has said on record that, like, uh you know, he gets quite a lot of um, money for this because he gets his, like, initial payment, which I can't remember what it is, but he also gets um, a percentage of the box office as a result of the deal that he makes about this. Um, Mm. And basically, he kind of, he stars in the movie, but he also plays quite an important kind of um, unofficial role as executive producer because he does a lot of work Mm. to actually get this movie to happen. And to be Mm -hmm. finally seen through to the end. Um, By the time this movie is finished filming, its budget is between 48 and 50 million dollars. And at the time, that made it one of the most expensive movies that had been shot. Wow. Um, And it was actually Schwarzenegger who chose Verhoeven as director when Cronenberg Hmm. dropped out. Um, and that's because you can just like choose the director you want. Well, again, that's goes to this thing of him being kind of the unofficial executive producer. Like he was really like his star power in the late eighties was what got people to believe that this thing was finally going to work. Um, and so he decided on Verhoeven in part because, and I had, I think we must've mentioned this briefly in our RoboCop episode because he had been considered for RoboCop as well. Mm. And so he knew oh. Verhoeven. And yeah. um, so this is where we are. Um, some other things in terms of uh, the overall production this movie was filmed in Mexico. Um, like, so, where, for example, in the scenes where it shows, 
Yeah, that's like the Mexico City metro. Like, really? That they are filming quite a lot in. Um, huh. And it must have been a grueling... Uh, well, I mean, unsurprisingly, but it took six months to shoot, which is, from my understanding, rather a long time uh, yeah. to shoot a movie. And um, I forget now what the name of the studios are in Mexico City, where they did quite a lot of the interior stuff. Um, but they basically used every single soundstage in this place to make this movie. Um, I was also noticing at various points, I thought... One of the things that I kind of enjoy about doing this podcast is it makes me appreciate the details in movies that normally when I watch something, I'm like, I don't know. Did I pay attention? Like, I don't know. Who cares? But um, in this time, this time I noticed quite quickly that I really liked the scoring of this music, particularly during Mm. various action and fight sequences. Um, and so I just felt like I should mention that the score was done by a guy named Jerry Goldsmith, who, from what I can gather, is a bit of a big deal in, when it comes to, uh, composers and scores, but this, this particular score is considered to be one of his best that he's ever done. Um, I'll also mention that, uh, this did win an Oscar, for practical effects. Um, oh, really? Yeah. You mean the part where the guy's arms got ripped off? <laughs> I mean, there's that part. There are so many parts that we'll get to talk about. Um, that part's out in my mind, but... Yeah, and so the, part of the thing that I do, and we've talked about this before, because I'm old, I like practical effects, even when they look quite obviously not real. Um, and there's quite a bit of that here. Um But, in fact, this is, like, right on the cusp of, like, just before CGI starts being used more widely. Um, And so the only CGI special effect in this movie is when um, Quaid is walking into the metro and they have that big scanner where you see, like, the skeletons of people walking and stuff. Mm. That's the only CGI in this movie. Pretty much everything else is done in a combination of like various types of practical effects, miniatures, green screen, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And then finally worth mentioning that though um, kind of critics are mixed on this movie, they like, there's not an overwhelming sense of like, this is terrible or this is great. Um, Generally speaking, this has come to be considered one of the best sci-fi movies ever made. Um, Whoa. And I think it's a bit to do with the story. I think it's a bit to do with the story. um, And then also to do with just like its widespread appeal. Like science fiction movies generally don't get as, as healthy of an audience as this got. Um, and that it's got quite a bit of staying power as a film. That is so interesting because we've watched a lot of stuff, even just on this podcast, I wouldn't, you know, I never watch any of this stuff of my own volition, but it is not even close to one of my favorites that we've watched. (laughs) And that is interesting. Um, well, best doesn't always mean favorite, but you know, fair enough. Yeah, that's true. Um, so in terms of the cast, uh, 
lately we've been having a lot of uh, movies and TV shows like this, which I quite like, where it's like you really only need to know about like maximum four Couple people. people. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> of course, we've got good old Quaid in the lead role, played by a 43-year-old Arnold Schwarzenegger. Um, we don't need to talk about him. We've talked about him multiple times in multiple episodes mm. about like what his career was like and where he was in time. Um, he is initially cast opposite, um, or I should say the first kind of um, love interest type character that he appears with on screen is his wife, question mark. We can talk about that. Lori, um, <laughs> played by a 32-year-old Sharon Stone, um, of course, as well. We're on the back end of this, so we know who Sharon Stone is and we know that she's a big deal. Um, Mm -hmm. But at the time, this was her breakout role. Um, Mm. And unsurprisingly, she started out doing modeling and like commercials and music video type stuff. Um, Yeah. Kind of across the 80s that seemed to be happening. And then she gets this, which in turn leads to her being cast in Basic Instinct, which comes out in 1992. Um, And I was talking about that movie the other night with mom, actually. Why? um, And weird. Why? We were talking about Sharon Stone because of this movie. And then Mm. I quoted the quote from Scream where he talks about Sharon Stone. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And mom thought that was funny. And she said that's because of Basic Instinct. Then we had a whole talk about Basic Instinct. Yeah. So what's interesting, I would say, is like, so she's in Basic Instinct Um, and a a number of other, I would say like her career has been characterized by that movie for, for good and ill. Um, (laughs) so good in the sense that like, she will always be a quintessential movie star. That movie made her a movie star and she's like a list and all that stuff. Ill in the sense that it really has was always then extremely difficult after that time to be cast in anything that wasn't like a femme fatale kind of circumstance. And you can tell that when you look at her credits, um, you know, she's in a bunch of different stuff that's quite similar seeming to Basic Instinct. Mm -hmm. Um, Then she gets... Uh, a little bit more recognition as a decent actor when she's in Casino, which I want to say is like maybe 1995 or six. Um, mm. And then, like, yeah, she's an interesting one because she will always be a movie star. Everyone will know who Sharon Stone is. Everyone will know her name. And like, um, yeah, I mean, it's you a know, great name. It's an excellent actor's name, and I'm I'm yeah. fairly certain it is her actual real name. Um, yeah, it's a good one. It is. Um, but then she goes on to do things like Catwoman and Basic Instinct 2, which I didn't know existed. Um, <laughs> so, you know, like, I think this is this can happen to certain people, not just women, although maybe in the past women were more, this was more of a thing where you play somebody super duper sexy and... There's just kind of somehow that's all anyone can ever think of ever again. Um, yep. Seems to be uh, her circumstances. Nonetheless, we don't need to worry about her. 
She's got plenty of money. She's got plenty of other <laughs> acting jobs. I'm sure. I I think it's fine. But I think she's okay. Um, yeah. But it's got. It probably was a bit annoying to be like, I'm good at this. And especially what I especially liked in this movie, and we'll talk about it, is um, she does a. It seems to do quite a lot of her own stunts for mm. like the fighting stuff. And I'm like, what a world where there could have been maybe more of a Sharon Stone as an action lead which would be kind of cool to see um then we're already almost out of who we need to know about there's um the character named Richter played by a 40 year old Michael Ironside um whom we talked about because he is the like lead really dickhead captain um in Starship Troopers um, but I did, and I probably mentioned this in, at, when we talked about Starship Troopers, but like his IMDb bio says specifically that he was, quote, a successful arm wrestler in his teenage years. Um, Who the fuck wrote that? <laughs> I don't know, and I don't know how you establish, I don't know how you establish success in the arm wrestling community. Um, but anyway. I don't either. I, also... I had a little bit of a problem with him. I mean, he's not meant to be a pleasant character. I know, but he's also not pleasant to look at. Yes, correct. I found it like, (laughs) this is going to be, should I say it? Whatever. Um, I found it borderline offensive that they would act like Sharon Stone could possibly be in a relationship uh, with him. Yes. Um, if that yes. makes sense. It absolutely does because I have actually had to turn TV and movies off where the <laughs> where the male lead looks like a shoe with a wig on. And... <laughs> And then he's cast opposite, like, a legitimately beautiful woman where, like, are you fucking serious? We're supposed to believe that these two people, let's not even say that they're in love, but that they're just, like, physically attracted to each other. Are you serious with me? I don't believe you. I can't believe you. Like... Absolutely not. And like, of course, it happens in real life. Like we've, I've, like we've, like literally seen it. Like it does happen. So like, but it, but it is like offensive to have to watch sometimes. It is. It it is an offense to the eyes. It is an offense to your senses. It is offense yeah. to your understanding of reality when you see these yeah. things. And it really does, I think, not that we need to, like, go super down the toxic masculinity hole, but, like, I think it does, like, you know, because we've talked about this, I'm sure, at some point by now, but, like, for whatever reason, people really do look at TV and movies as connected to their real lives. Like, people will talk about, like, yeah. oh, I saw that show, and then I did that thing. Or that changed my mind about this. Or then, you know, which, I mean, I feel yeah. bad for us as a species. That that's what it takes. But, like, anyway. Yeah. Um, nonetheless, that's how people really are. It's why representation matters in movies, you know, all this stuff. Yeah, yeah. But in the case of this thing, it's, like, it's, it's why... <laughs> First of all, it's why kind of 
women being 10 years and more younger than their male partners is normalized because that's what was yeah. always shown on screen. And then and just women's looks in general, right? Like right. we're expected to look like Sharon Stone, but it's cool for dudes to look like Michael Ironside. Nobody right. Cares. And dudes like my, Michael Ironside can have incredibly successful acting careers. And the, mm-hmm. the female equivalent of a Michael Ironside is lucky if she's going to be slapped in the face when she goes to McDonald's. Like, you know, like... <laughs> Or also, also, if she does have an acting career, she will play a literal witch. Correct. And that's going to be her thing. It's like, oh, you're going to play, you're going to play the mother of a guy who is actually 12 years older than you. You know, like, that's your thing, that that's what you're going to do. Um, And so, yes, I agree with you in that entirely. (laughs) It really bugs me. When that is depicted on screen and particularly because it's so funny that you mentioned this because literally just last night as I was making my way uh, to, I'm not even sure I would call it a date, but I was on my way and uh, I was like looking at some couples and I noticed this one couple in particular and I was like, that's nice because they match. Like, they were the exact same sort of person. It was like, this is like the male version of this person. Like, average. That's the whole thing. They were were fine. They were neither good nor bad, but they, like, when I saw them, they stood out in their averageness as a pair, if that makes sense. Um, Because I was just like, that is a well-matched couple. Like, there is nobody (laughs) who is like bringing better anything to the table. They really, <laughs> like, they belong together in wow. a, like, and also I'll say, it's they weren't, like, disgusting. They both had, that's the whole thing. It's like, they both had a nice outfit on that was, like, flattering to them. They mm-hmm. were both wearing glasses. They both were of what appeared to be a similar age. You know, like, all the things. And I was like, yeah. look at that. And I... I, I appreciate that this probably says something horrible about my shallowness and judgment of people and like what I'm spending my time thinking about when in transit on public transportation. <laughs> but well, nonetheless, to be fair, transportation, you know, there's not a lot to think about. Um, but yeah, I t- like that's the thing. It is really obnoxious quite often. To have like beautiful woman and disgustoid man like paired and just, together, and, yeah, and and also just to like make it sound like a little less rude on our parts, I guess, is like you just generally do not see it in the reverse. So no, like you if, don't. If it felt like more evenly spaced out, <laughs> where no, that's the like, thing. That's what I mean. That, oh, that's you reminded me of my point. It's like that's it's toxic masculinity. It's nice guy bullshit. Like yeah, men who like haven't seen a comb in eight years are like, but I like a pretty girl, <laughs> and you're like, yeah, buddy. Like, what about what you're doing in your life suggests? that that is the type of person that you deserve. Like, you don't go to the gym. You don't take care of your skin. You haven't got a haircut in years. You wear bad clothes. You smell bad. You're unpleasant to be around. No one wants oh, to talk to you. Those, like 
Oh, wow. The, the last two are really, like, the meat of it. Like, you smell bad and you're not fun to be around. Or is like, a big part of that. Well, that's... But, I mean, look. Anybody can look like anything and be... And expect to be treated nicely and all these things. That's... I'm not debating that. But what I am saying is... <laughs> when we see a guy like this in this movie who is objectively unattractive and he is paired with Sharon Stone at her most beautiful and yeah. not and that in and of itself is an affront to God and nature. Now True. And he also plays a dick, so it's like on top of that's it, the, that's what it. I was about to say is like what it would make sense if for example, then we see like oh he's got this like they've got this loving relationship. He seems nice. Yeah. Like there's some yeah. like counterbalance to make yeah. it make sense. But instead, he treats her like shit and yeah. is an ass. And so you're like yeah. what kind of message does this send to people it's like wild. all people to to men and women both what message does it send about what we can expect you know what i think maybe i think maybe melania watched this movie Ooh, and was like ah topical zing <laughs> um speaking of we have a character called melina in this movie Ooh. Um, and that's played by a 32-year-old Rachel Ticotine. I'm not totally sure how to pronounce her last name. Um, and she started out as a ballerina um, hmm. and then went on to be briefly married to David Caruso. They were married between 1983 and 1989. Um, and in the lead-up to this role, she was doing a lot of TV work, um, Mostly kind of one-off, like, episodes here, episodes there, various stuff. Um, then she got this movie and subsequently had, a f again, kind of, she, like, kind of went back to what she had been doing before, which is, like, a lot of one-off TV shows or, like, maybe, like, a pilot season of something, you know, stuff like mm -hmm. that. Um, her last credit is in 2020, so it's possible she's officially retired at this point, but... We may see her coming down the track again. Um, and then finally, we have the dastardly Cohagen, played by a 52-year-old Ronnie Cox, also a guy we've talked about before um, because he was in RoboCop. He was one of, like, the business dudes in RoboCop. Mm -hmm. um, okay. So anyway, here we are. This movie kicks off with what I, again, because I was noticing the score a lot this time. Um, I thought the credit sequence was really great um, in terms of like the visuals and what the music was doing. I also, even, this shows how truly like nerdtastic I am. Uh, in the first few seconds before the credits even begin um, was the TriStar Pictures like opening little thing where it's got the Pegasus running in the clouds and then like jumps yeah. over the logo. I just really mm -hmm. love that. I love that one. That's one of my favorite <laughs> ones. Okay. It's weird. It's your like favorite, like your favorite studio. Uh, you like that yes. better than like production uh, company. The Roaring Lion. I mean, the Roaring Lion's pretty good, but I like the TriStar Pegasus. <laughs> The best. And okay. I know that sounds stupid and insane, but I, I think it's because, actually, it's possible that Supergirl was also put out by TriStar Pictures. So, like, I have this very, like, 
er childhood memory that's like, oh, when you see this one, it's a movie you're going to like. Like, already, <laughs> straight away. And they're yeah. right, because I, as I said, I like this one, too. Um, once we get through the credits, um, we open on a scene of a red cliff. Um, I don't know that we already know it's Mars, but maybe if we'd seen the trailer in the in 1990, we would know it's Mars. Um, now, t- t- uh, there was not a title card, right? At the no. beginning here? This movie okay. is title card free, which is interesting. It was um, interesting because I feel like I would never say this generally. I could have used a couple. <laughs> <laughs> like I could have like, used a little it, background. Even just there. a bit of like, what year is it? Like, yes. what's going on? Yeah. yeah um, just a little. Yeah. Just a, a little boop, a little bit. Yeah. Um, so here we are. We're, we're on this, the, walking along the cliff in a red world. Um, Quaid and what, who at the time appears to be a mysterious woman are walking together along the cliff. And Quaid kind of takes a step and the ground falls away and he starts falling um, down the side of the cliff only to jump cut to wake up to him in his bed having had a nightmare. And um, Lori is there. Lori, we presume at this point, is his wife. Um, She seems to be quite concerned about this nightmare thing. It's implied that this has been going on for rather a while, though it's unclear Mm -hmm. how long. Um, and this scene was a bit, there was a lot of like, I don't know how I would describe it. I have a real respect for Sharon Stone in that the, the like character she was expected to play in when she was playing like the wifely version of it, um, seemed like she was going through like some sort of bipolar two manic episode like the whole time. Like she yeah. was she was initially like concerned about these nightmares, then she gets really pissed that he's seeing the same woman in his dreams and is like yeah. jealous of her somehow. That was weird. Yeah, that and was then weird. Was all and I think I remember like she was even kind of like getting actively physical with him about it, like I think kind so. of yeah. wrestling around and like hitting him about it. And yeah. then no sooner does that kind of wave of emotion pass, then she's like, let's have sex oh now. Gosh. And I'm like, what is going on with this woman? Like, this is really quite a lot happening. The, the quickness with which Lori goes from, I'm concerned to you, now I'm angry with you now I want to have sex is like what is going on here like in a different world I'd be like this woman needs to seek out psychiatric help because this is not normal behavior yeah like it's um, now that I'm thinking about it you know we talk about basic instinct and her character at least in this particular moment that like '90s blonde lady. She's reminding me of like Fatal Attraction a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I mean, 
I think we can also chalk it up to like prop. We know that the writer is a man, so like he's not <laughs> perhaps great at getting the nuances of female emotions or whatever. But um, like honestly, I'm like in real life when you see this kind of behavior, you are meant to like check in with your partner and be like, hey treading lightly here like especially someone because they imply in this that they've been married for eight years or something so I'd be like hey babe like remember how uh you told me you have uh what's the one home it's not it's not bipolar it's like borderline personality (sighs) disorder yes that's the one yeah Mm -hmm. Um, because that one, like the way she's behaving to me is often how I see that depicted Mm. now. Like, um, this, and the, especially the very, like, I'm going to accuse you of something and now I want to sleep with you. And you're like, I'm confused. Like, (laughs) aren't you angry at me? Like, um, so I would be like, Hey babe, it sure seems like you might not be okay. Things are going like, have you been keeping up with the meds like I maybe I haven't noticed like you know whatever um but that is not everything apparently seems fine in this household to him um and then and we'll see why like that's the thing is like Lori is not actually suffering from any kind of mental health disruption uh this is all part of something else and I think that explains quite a lot of this behavior at first yeah um so after they have sex, I think is what is implied, um, Quaid is making breakfast and watching the news in his wall of his apartment. Um, like the wall, the various like panels in the wall are beca- can turn on to TVs or they can act like windows and show different scenes. Um, and specifically... There's like a news broadcast about terrorist attacks on Mars being led by someone who has never been seen, but is called Quato mm. or Quato. People seem to say both. Um, Lori comes in, meanwhile, shuts off the news and is like, that's going to stress you out. Um, you should just like relax about it. And then... Uh, Quaid brings up again the idea of maybe moving to Mars. This seems to be something he's mentioned a couple times. Um, again, Lori flies into a rage of some <laughs> persuasion. Um, and then, uh, like, she... So then she's upset. Quaid puts the news back on again. He wants to watch the press conference. And now, immediately again, Lori is like, don't pay attention to this. I actually, when she was doing this, I was like, oh, I've seen this vibe from partners before where it's like, you're not paying enough attention to me. You're not paying enough attention to me. And then they (laughs) sit on someone's lap and you're like, Okay, I guess I and like and it was this kind of like physical comedy bit where she like sat on his lap and he and is like holding his face to be like, don't look at the news, make out with me, make out with me. And like he's like moving his head around because he's like, sweetie, I just like we literally just had sex. I would really like to watch the news now. Like, um 
And I have to say as well, this shows like that Quaid maybe isn't super experienced in the in the relationship game because if they're supposed to have been together for eight years and you've just had sex with her and now she's angling to have sex with you again like 15 minutes later, that's not generally how a relationship of eight years is functioning on like an average Wednesday morning or whatever this is. <laughs> like, I'm just like, True. what is this guy's damage? Why doesn't he understand that there's like something weird happening here? Um, then when he gets up, he gets going, he gets into the train to go to work. And when he's on the train, oh, I think this is when, oh yeah, this is when we get to see the first like establishing shot of how this scanner operates when you go into the metro. Um, mm-hmm. Which I did, I don't know, I guess I'm just a sucker for that. I was like, oh, look, it's a skeleton walking through a thing. That's great. You know, like, um, <laughs> but anyway, when he gets on the train, he sees a commercial for the Recall Corporation. Um, and do you want to try and explain what you think it is that they sell or like what they offer? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, please do try. Also, you try and do that while I get a glass of water. I don't know what they offer. They offer, um, and well, it says in your notes, I'm going to just read what your notes say. The guy, the sales guy offers the ego trip where right. you take a vacation from yourself. Ooh, I Correct. love that. <laughs> I know. I know. It's what I've been desiring my whole life. Um, yeah, that goes back to your first question, and I think that's the perfect vacation, actually. And what the, what vacation most people actually need. Right, is like total disconnection like from, from your, your mind. reality. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so... Just to clarify, what Recall Corporation, what the ad says, is that they can implant memories of a vacation to anywhere, doing anything you like, um, and then it will be basically like as if you went on that vacation. Mm. Um, now, we we could talk about, like, you didn't go, though, but you have the memories, so, like, is that good enough and whatever. And I think, though they don't make it clear in this movie, my my guess, based on the short stories kind of tone, my guess is the thing is, is like, this is some kind of future of like heightened capitalism, right? And so mm-hmm. most people not only probably don't have the money to go on a quote unquote real vacation somewhere, um, but also probably aren't allowed the time off to go on a vacation, right? So it's like, oh, this is the workaround. This is why this product exists. So you can feel like you went on a vacation um, when in fact you just like had basically like a 10-minute doctor's appointment, um, which seems bleak (laughs) as hell. Yeah. (laughs) Because as well, like per what I was saying at the top about my desires for a relaxing vacation is like, if I just am like run down from working, often it's not only that I'm like mentally like I need a break from this. 
And it's, it's like, I also sometimes feel like physically run down. Like I'm like, I need to be like laying around a lot. I need my feet to be Mm -hmm. touching the ground, like no more than 15% of each day. Like, um, (laughs) you know, all this stuff. If I just go and get the memories implanted, I don't think they're going to also like give me the sense that I've been at a day spa for like a few days or whatever I've asked for. Yeah, the physical part would be interesting. Because even if you have the memory, did your body actually rest? Well, it didn't. <laughs> I mean, right, it didn't. that's what I'm saying. Um, so. Yeah. So, uh, Quaid shows up at his job. Turns out, in this reality, he's a construction worker. And in my handwritten notes... The first note I said is like construction site dash such arms exclamation point Um, (laughs) because like we've talked about Schwarzenegger's biceps before, but like this might have been the most gratuitous like capturing of them on film of all. And that's saying something is what I mean. Like. Because really, you think it's more gratuitous than in Predator when they do like a literal like bicep shot? I think it is because in Whoa. this movie he's bulked up even more. Hmm. Like his arms somehow here's, seem here's, even huger. Hmm. Here's my hot take. And I can't remember if I said this on any of the other Schwarzenegger things that we've talked about. I don't find him attractive. Yes, I we've discussed this. I'm Have I sure okay, of it. Okay. I'm sure of it. Okay. <laughs> um, and that's it's fair just enough. Watching movies, it's just because like watching these movies, you can tell you're supposed to be feeling that. Right. So when I don't, I'm. It, it makes me like a little annoyed. <laughs> <laughs> and for me, I had a different reaction, which was. I think this might be the movie where he looked the best he ever looked in terms of like, cause now again, he's still, the muscly thing is not for me, but I was yeah. like, I can appreciate what's happening here. And sure, sure, sure. from that aspect of like all his films and all the stuff I've seen, I really do think this, this and actually weirdly like kindergarten cop, which is also from the same year. I'm like, mm. I think this has this has gotten this moment as as happens with every human life. There's some point in your life where like objectively you are the best you've ever looked. And yeah, yeah, yeah. I and, agree with Kindergarten Cop, but I think it has to do with I maybe it's not even that I don't find him attractive. It's I don't like the like tough like yeah, yeah. Action star version of him. That's fair enough as well. Um, but so, yeah, there's, I mean, this is, the the whole purpose of this scene is one, to show off Arnold's guns, which we don't see much in the rest <laughs> of the movie, to be honest. Um, and then the other important part of this scene is, like, he's working at this construction site. He's using one of those big drills, which makes his arm muscles bubble and pop and, like, all this crazy shit. And yeah. he's got a coworker who, in comparison to Arnold Schwarzenegger, could he looks like a bowl of mayonnaise. Like it's just like, oh my <laughs> god, the, the difference between these two people. 
people is like shocking. Um, the fact that these two people are both considered human male is like, what? These are the same species. I can't even believe yeah. it. Like, but anyway, he's talking to his friend and he's like, Hey, I'm think I saw that recall commercial. I'm thinking about doing it. And his buddy's like, no, man, don't do that because I had a friend who got that done and basically they lobotomized him. And so, like, Quaid is like, oh, okay, maybe I won't do it then. Oh, okay. <laughs> I would rather not be lobotomized, so fair enough. But, um, and I guess also, too, like, watching this movie for the purpose of the podcast is also different for me because I was like, I didn't remember all the clues in these opening scenes that something weird was happening. Was mm-hmm. um, because then the camera, like, lingers on this friend, and its friend is, like, watching Quaid kind of closely. Mm-hmm. And you're like, why does this guy care so much whether he goes to recall or not? But mm-hmm. we will find out soon. Needless to say, uh, Quaid feels such compulsion about this Mars thing that he finds himself in the recall office later that day. I think Mm -hmm. the timing on this is quite unclear, like the time frame of any of it. Um, And so he comes to the recall office. This also, I quite liked in the very little bit of it, did you like how the secretary was painting her nails and was just able to like change the color immediately yes that is one of the few things i remembered (laughs) (laughs) and i remember in the moment being like oh damn yeah that i wish i could do that yeah she changes them like i think two different times in the course of like a couple minutes which i very much envied um yes so needless to say when it comes to the actual purpose of this scene, we start out by seeing this sales guy pitching what you just described, the ego trip um, where you take a vacation from yourself. Um, and there are various like options you can pick uh, within the ego trip, but Quaid opts for a package where he's going to Mars as a secret agent. Um, and so then he uh, gets brought into like the... I don't know, I guess procedure room for this. And he's being Mm -hmm. strapped up to some kind of weird-ass machine. You know what I also thought was weird about this in terms of it being a science fiction movie? No one ever actually says, like, the machine doesn't seem to have a name. No one Mm -hmm. says, like, this is the whatever Tron 4000. Like, no one says that. And... There's not even seemingly a name for the procedure that he's getting. Um, yeah. Like, there's Recall Corporation, there's the Ego Trip package, but we don't, like, I kept being like, is this considered a mind wipe? Is this called mm-hmm. an implantation? Like, what is this thing that he's what getting are we done? With here? Um, yeah. And none of that is described, which I f- is kind of interesting. Um, as thing, as kind of like things are getting set up, the doctor responsible for this procedure um, mm-hmm. starts asking Quaid questions um, so that they can tailor the program, like tailor the memories to what he wants. Um, this is where she asks quite a lot of what I would describe as impertinent questions um, <laughs> about... Uh, his sexual preferences um, yeah. and all these things. Um, but nonetheless, 
that's happening. Um, as Quaid starts to pass out in preparation for whatever this procedure is, things start to go deeply wrong. Machines start to, like, blare alarm sounds. The doctor starts screaming out that he's having a schizoid embolism. God knows what that is. It can't be good. Um, no. Uh, Quaid himself starts freaking out in the chair, so they have to sedate him. Um, the sales guy comes into the room and is like, what are you doing? What have you done wrong? And the doctor is like, I haven't done anything yet. He's got memories of going to Mars. And he's like, of course he does. That's what he asked for. And she was like, I haven't implanted them yet. Like this guy's mind has been fucked with already once before. And so we've kind of like exposed that messed up part like again now and that's not how this recall process works um so the sales guy uh ever the pragmatist is like okay well do what you can to erase his memory of ever being in this office and then dump him (laughs) in the street um so that he can never say like so that nothing can ever come back to us because also as he's freaking out i guess i forget if it's the sales guy or the doctor but one of them is like the only people capable of doing what's been done to this guy's brain is this shadowy group called the agency which richter seems to be a part of as well and so they're like we don't want to get mixed up in that just make and we don't want them to come back knocking at our door so just like get this guy out of here um so Quaid, in the end, wakes up disoriented in a Johnny cab, uh, which, do you remember the, how the taxis worked in this world? No. Oh, man. Why do you not? You do need a total recall <laughs> of total recall. Seriously, I do. Um, well, they're like auto-driven with like a oh, weird guy okay, okay. or like oh, a weird. Oh, yes, yes. Okay. Almost like um, like the top of a ventriloquist dummy yes. sort of okay, thing. Okay, now I remember. Yes, so yes. He, he wakes up in one of those and then uh, runs into his co-worker. And his co-worker is like, hey, man, I told you not to go to recall. And the little bit of memory erasure that they did there must have worked because he's like, recall, I didn't go to recall. And his coworker's like, I know you did. And so, like, Quaid is super confused. The coworker is like, what's going on? And then mm-hmm. these thugs descend on to Quaid. And Quaid, like, um, for lack of a better way of saying it, seems to activate and mm-hmm. eventually ends up beating up and killing. I don't know if he killed all of them in this first thug posse, but he certainly kills <laughs> at least two straight mm-hmm. away. And then he looks around at what he's done, like in horror and confusion. And I think mm-hmm. what it is, is like the horror is the natural bit, like you've killed some people. But the confusion is like, I knew how to do that. Like, how did I know how to do that um mm-hmm. he runs home and tells his wife Lori, what happened she is like you're hallucinating because you went to recall like this 
this whole thing that you just said happened didn't happen. And he holds mm-hmm. up his hands, which are still bloody. And he's like, is this a hallucination? Um, so she tells him to like go clean himself up. He goes into the other room, into the bathroom. And that's when we're introduced to Richter for the first time because she calls up Richter. And we see at that time, he's not like identified as anything. She, he's just some man. Um, I also kind of liked the rendering of the video phone in this world where it's like a big square screen on a landline that allows you to see people. <laughs> um, yeah. So when uh, Quaid gets out of the bathroom, his whole house is in darkness. Someone shoots at him and then he starts fighting this like stranger person in the dark. Um, and then it, both like for the viewer and for Quaid, it's a big reveal when I guess they turn the lights back on and he's he's fighting with his own wife. He's fighting with Lori. She's mm. tried to shoot him. And he's like, what's going on? Like, I don't understand. And she reveals that she's working for the agency as well, that they haven't been married for eight years, that rather she only met uh, Quaid six weeks ago and that she's been playing along as though she's his wife. Um, He doesn't believe her, um, but she's like, no, all of your memories of our life have been implanted. There's nothing like, I don't know what you were doing on Mars. What would you do? Literally, what would you do? Um, I mean... Besides have a full panic attack. Yeah, I would be super terrified. I'd be like... Yeah. Like, so first of all, I'd be like... To the degree that I remembered what the previous six weeks were like, I would probably focus on that time most of all and be like... Mm-hmm. what should I have noticed? What should have I picked up on like in those six mm-hmm. weeks? Because clearly my memories of the previous eight years or maybe even my whole life, I don't know how these memory implantations worked, but like yeah. those aren't to be trusted. So right. can't have that. Think about the past six weeks and I would probably do what he does do, which is get the fuck out of here. I'm like, I gotta, I can't be here. Like, this is bad. This is bad, bad, bad. And I need to figure out what's going on here. Um, mm-hmm. Once he runs away, uh, I mean, he kind of rolls with the punch better than I would, I think. <laughs> like, because um, mm-hmm. this is like, one of the first points in this movie where, like, reality and, like, whatever you think you're doing start to separate. Like, this is the first place, and there will be more of that later. Um, once he he manages to escape his home just before Richter and his group of thugs show up um, <laughs> to ask Lori, like, what the fuck happened and she's and this is when it's revealed that though she's been pretending to be Quaid's wife she's actually dating this horrible man instead um and that that's just seemed all of it just seemed yucky somehow like 
not only is he, like, mean to her, and I guess you could maybe say, oh, the reason he's being mean is because he's jealous because she's obviously sleeping with this other guy as part of her cover or whatever. Mm-hmm. And it's like, yeah, that would be um, that would be emotionally challenging, right? Like, because um, she, quote-unquote, has to sleep with this guy as part of her job. And... Yep. Even, we don't know what year this is, but like even the most elevated person may struggle with being told that sort of thing. Um, yeah. And this guy really doesn't seem like he has the emotional range or chops to deal with that reality in a healthy way. So, um, yeah, the whole vibe between the two of them was kind of gross all over the place. Mm. Um yeah. Then we get a series, we like kind of a long, actually, action chase shootout sequence that takes us through, again, through the metro station, um, then uh, into kind of the city streets of this Earth city, though we're not clear exactly where this Earth city is in this movie. Um, as they're having this chase scene... Richter and his compatriot get a call in the car phone from Cohagen. And Cohagen in particularly in particular is concerned about something he keeps calling total recall. Um, mm-hmm. which again, it's funny that this is the name of the movie, and yet there's basically no time dedicated to this procedure enough to know what total recall really means. Like, I mean, total recall, if you just look at the, if you listen to the words, you're like, oh, that means complete memory return, I guess. But, um, but that also isn't what happens to Quaid over the course of this movie. Um, And since we don't actually know like the science, quote unquote, or the medicine around this implantation procedure. Total Recall yeah. actually is kind of a weird, like, I'm like, I'm not sure I know what that means. Um, yeah. Or like, or like how we would prevent it or when we would know it had happened. Like, um, right. So that's, I just think that's kind of an interesting one where I'm like, this is the fundamental crux of this movie. And I'm yeah. not sure it's clear what it is. <laughs> like, yeah. And particularly, the the way that Quaid is able to evade these people at the end of the chase is quite amazing. So he manages to get himself to this, like, hotel, whereupon he arrives at the hotel and gets a call from some mysterious man who identifies himself as a friend from his agency days. So that's the other thing is apparently Quaid also used to work for the agency. That's that reveal. Mm-hmm. And the guy who calls him is like, hey, they've got you've got a tracker inside of you that the agency is Yikes. puts in all of its agents and to dampen it, to like basically stop anyone from being able to track you, what does uh, Quaid have to put on his head? <laughs> oh no! Is this when he ha- wears a turban? Yes. <laughs> this was unfortunate. 
Correct. I didn't that is like the, the correct way that response. Um, he, well, it's not a turban per se, although it was done up as one. It's supposed to be a wet towel on his head. And oh. somehow that's going to like block the signal of this tracker that's been implanted in his body. That's amazing. Um, yeah, I, and, this is and does why. And it have to be wet? What Couldn't it be yes. any other? Could it not be like a wet hat? Why does it have to be a towel? <laughs> I don't know. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah, if it's just is like, cause is it like, is it the wet part? Is right. that what bro- the wet blocks part or is the, the signal? Material? Because if have, it does were it have just to be terry cloth, yes. If it's just wetness, why can't you just wet your own head, like or wet your right. hair? Um, why has it right. got to be a towel? Um, no, it's hilarious, and <laughs> like the fact as you describe it, he's got a turban on his head. Because I did, I was like, well, first of all, wet towel b- blocking this like super good technology that seems weird. Um, yeah, and then on top of that, then coupled with. The way the towel was affixed to his head in such, like, an artful manner, I was like, that's not the usual, like, you know, flip your head over, take the towel, wrap it around, slam it back. Like, this is, like, something. I literally thought it was a turban. I, like, kind of, like, I I feel like I looked up and I was like, he's wearing a turban now. I don't know what's happening. You're like, that's rather insensitive. What is he doing Yes, that's truly what I was like, man, this movie is from the 90s. Yeah, so he puts the towel on his head um, per the directions of this stranger. The stranger also brings him a suitcase uh, and basically is like, you told me if you ever got in trouble to bring you this suitcase. Um, So then Quaid ends up taking the suitcase uh, to an abandoned cement factory for some reason Um, Well, I mean, it's because the thugs come, so he can't stay at the hotel. So he goes to this abandoned cement factory. And when he opens the suitcase, in it he has money, various different IDs, a hollow watch, which will become important later, and, like, this big, like, video player device. And Quaid sits down to watch the video and learns, so like up on the screen comes his double, and his double explains that he's not really Quaid. In fact, his name is Hauser, that Hauser was in, uh, a member of the agency, that, and the agency works for Cohagen. Um, and so that, I guess the implication is that his life as an agent was spent doing quite dastardly and morally dubious things. Mm-hmm. But uh, Hauser in the video says, like, but I met someone who changed my mind about what I was doing, um, and now I want you to kind of seek out this resistance movement on Mars. Um, to do that, however, Quaid needs to remove the tracker from his body, and it turns out that the tracker apparently is, like, jammed way, way up into your nasal yeah. passage, Um, and so the suitcase also had like the tool that you need to remove the tracker. Um, and this is where some of the good practical effects show up. So there's, um, a shot where I'll just say quote unquote Quaid, because it's not Arnold Schwarzenegger. It is a model made of Arnold Schwarzenegger's head. 
that is shoving this weird tool up the model's nose so that the like you see like quite a lot of like expanding and extending of the nostril in a kind of graphic way um, to pull out this tracker, um, which that which on the one hand is interesting to see. On the other hand, even though I knew it was fake, I was like, this looks gross. I don't yeah, like no, this. Yeah, thank you. Um, mm-hmm. So he pulls the tracker out of his nose. The video version of himself tells him he needs to go to Mars. As this is all happening, the thugs and Richter show up. So Quaid smashes the video player, puts the tracker in a rat, and escapes. And so, like, the thugs keep following the erratic movements of the tracker for rather a bit before they realize what Quaid has done. And I was like, that's a good gag. I like that. That's fun. Mm-hmm. Um, we then jump to the Mars airport um, where a except an exceptionally large, and by that I mean tall, red-headed woman is going through customs and uh, she shows her passport to the customs agent and the customs agent asks kind of the usual questions, which is how long do you expect to be on Mars? And then he asks a follow-up question. Um, oh, like I think that was like, where are you staying? But yeah. the woman just keeps saying two weeks over and over again. And starts freaking out. Um, and so can you, do you remember this part with this lady and what happens to her face? Oh, holy hell. Yes. Well, she looked crazy to begin with. Like, she looked odd. Yes. And then her face, like, it's sort of like, if I recall correctly, it, like, comes off (laughs) yes it does it does indeed I don't remember if if it's like a ripping situation or if it's like a all of a sudden it just sort of shape shifts into Arnold Schwarzenegger I forget but it no what it is is like um it starts opening up like by sections oh like from the center outward like, so there are little, yeah, yeah, yeah. and then they like open, open, open. And then there's Arnold Schwarzenegger's face underneath this woman's yeah. head that has come yeah. apart. Um, so he has managed to get to Mars, but immediately, of course, he's in trouble because it just so happens. And this is sure convenient that he is on the very same plane or spaceship or whatever you want to call it that the thugs are also on. And so when he starts messing up the customs line, the thugs realize what's going on. So they start shooting up this entry place area, which is like uniquely insane. And I'm like, these people are supposed to be living on Mars or like familiar with Mars. And they should know better than anyone that in the space of these domes, like you cannot be shooting guns. Like, um, because what might happen is precisely what does happen, which is someone's bullet misses its target. It goes through the exterior wall. And so then the entire, like, 
vestibule, vestibule or whatever it is of the airport gets depressurized and people are sucked mm-hmm. out into space. My um, worst nightmare. No, I'd, I never want to be sucked out of anywhere, but certainly not sucked oh, out into space. Into space. Um, but this, you know, in this chaos, basically, uh, Quaid is able to escape the situation and able to get through customs on the other side um, because no one's paying attention. Um, hmm. But, 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 do we need to talk about this? So... We have a couple cutaway scenes as we're moving along in the movie where we get the impression that Cohagen and Richter both have plans for what they want to do to Quaid, but they are not the same plan. And that mm-hmm. Cohagen in particular is not telling the whole story to Richter. So that I'll just mention because it will become important later. Once Quaid gets through customs, um, he manages to go to a hotel, um, which I can't remember if that was like some of the information that uh, his other double told him to do or what, but he gets to this hotel and when he checks in, the person checking him in is like, oh, there's a message on your account that says you've left something in a um, like security box here. Do you want to look at it? And he's like, yeah, sure, I'll take it. And when the hotel clerk kind of gives him the box, what he finds inside is a flyer for the last resort strip club and I guess like brothel or whatever. Um, and on the back of it, it says something like, oh, wait, it says, for a good time, call Melina. <laughs> um, and that is interesting as a clue, I would say. Um, but what I also liked about this little bit is so the handwriting on the back says for a good time, call Melina. And so he takes a pen and writes Melina to check if that's his handwriting, <laughs> which I thought was like, I was like, oh, that's clever. He wants to make sure that this is, is like a clue from himself. Yeah. Yeah. So he goes over to the last resort, which is in a different part of town, I guess we could say, that is called Venusville. Um, This is when we also get the wisecracking cabbie Benny is introduced briefly. Um, He will also come to be a bit more important later. Um, When we get to the last resort, uh, Quaid is, of course looking for Melina um, and asking around about her. But then we get one of the most infamous parts of this movie, which you perhaps remember. Um, you mean like when they fight, when they get into No, fight? no. Like when oh. he gets to the brothel, before he's even run across Melina, he runs across a different woman with a particular kind of set of offers. I don't remember. Uh, this is bro- the three a, a, boob bro- woman. Sex worker? Oh. <laughs> I forgot. Yeah, the three boob woman. That is like one of the things <laughs> that most people this remember this about this movie. For? Yeah, that's not surprising. I mean, it is. it was interesting to see. And I found myself... When I was looking at it, 
And I didn't want to like linger on it too long, but I was like, <laughs> is, is this like a breastplate, you know, like how drag queens will have the oh, thing like that you can like to figure out how they did it. Like, is yeah. it a breastplate where actually like it looks, it's like three boobs crafted onto a thing or is, are two yeah. of those boobs hers? And then like a third was just like smushed into the middle that's fake. Um, you know what I bet? I bet that no, very few people who are watching it and remembering that part, that's what's going through their head. Probably not. No. <laughs> but that's what I but, was But it's a fair about. question. I mean, yeah, I get it. Because um, I, like, I, if I were more of a creep, I would have really paused and tried <laughs> to see if I could tell a difference of like, are two of those boobs real and is one fake? And if so, is it the one in the middle or something else going on that one I don't understand? Assume. Yeah. <laughs> um, one would assume the middle one would be fake, but. I, that's how I imagine it would be done, but I don't. Yeah. But I almost think that for the purpose of how it was meant to look, I could also see someone being like, no, we taped down. Fake. Yeah, like tape down real boobs and then get a breastplate thing going over so that they can all look the same sort of thing. Um, Yeah. I also feel like I once read something where like the actor who played that woman um, was like, that ruined my career and I never recovered from it or something. And I'm like... Oh, that's kind of sad. I know. I'm like, I don't know why it would be that bad like or traumatizing necessarily, but like... Who am I to just say? Like everyone just always knew her as a three boob lady, and she was like pissed. I guess. Her. I guess. Mm. So that's too bad. I know. I do feel a bit bad for her. So three boob lady, we're sorry. We'll think of you fondly. Um. So Melina then appears. She keeps calling Quaid Hauser because that's who she knows him to be. They go up to her room, um, where. Like, they fight about the fact that he's been missing. Um, again, mm. this is where maybe, maybe both Quaid and Hauser choose women that are somewhat unstable because um, <laughs> not only is she, she slaps him and then she hugs him and then she's like, we're in love and then whatever. And then when he says to her, like, my mind's been erased I don't know who Hauser is. I've just been on Earth. They gave me this wife. And immediately she was like, you've got a wife? Like, and I was like, lady, you're really missing the more important part of what he said here, which is his mind was erased. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so, but you're getting upset about, I, don't I care guess, about that. Like, I don't know what is happening here. Now, in fairness to her, if I were seeing someone and then they just fucking ghosted for six weeks and then the next time I saw them, they were like... They said their mind was erased? My mind is erased. I'm a different person now. I've got a wife. I'd be like, go (laughs) fuck yourself. (laughs) Like, what is happening? No, I think I would actually be like concerned like not there would be yes there would be something clearly very deeply wrong for sure yeah 
And, and I, don't I think, might. But so I also am not sure that my. I'm not sure my first thought would be like, I'm pissed at you because you have a wife. I would be like, I'm concerned for you. You That seems, you know, like an, an unhinged thing to say. Correct. Also, that's a lie. <laughs> well, yes, like, I, I, would, I would be very hard pressed to believe that that were true for sure. Yeah. But at my most charitable and I like to think of myself <laughs> as a kind and empathetic person. I would be sure. like, okay, so I haven't seen you in weeks. I assumed you'd fallen off the face of the planet rather than have a five-minute conversation saying how you don't want to see me anymore. Um, <laughs> and now you've come back into my life saying that you are Just a to new tell person. Me you don't want to see me anymore. Yeah, yeah. you're a new person. This, this is a lot for me to take in. And not only would I be concerned for that person and be like, mm, I don't remember you having a history of mental illness and instability, but like, this is different. <laughs> so that I would be concerned for them. But I would also be concerned for myself. I'd be like, I am in a room alone with a yeah, person no, sure. who has just told me. <laughs> <laughs> that their minds have been erased and they're a different person. Oh, absolutely. Like, 100%. I would have a lot of concerns coming out of that conversation would that would not would be too. about and you were already married. About like, that would be like yeah. the lowest hanging fruit of concern yeah, on that conversation. Because, because remind me, maybe uh, what what is her expectation of their relationship like she it's she doesn't not know him totally well it's not totally clear but from the breadcrumbs that they give us earlier I think what happened like I don't know how long they were together for but yeah. I think it was supposed to be quite meaningful and intense because the whole reason that mm -hmm. Hauser gives up on the agency is because he no longer feels okay about what the agency is doing. And that's because of Melina's influence. Okay. So if that's the case, that does change it a little bit for me. Cause like if I, if I'm imagining that like, you know, I like went on a couple casual dates with somebody and they ghosted me and then came back to me with this mind erasure and wife scenario, I would be, it would be very easy to be like, Cool, cool, cool. Bye. Yeah. Uh, Goodbye forever. Sounds good <laughs> luck with that. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like trauma. And the, but if they were someone like your husband or your like partner that you'd been with for years, and then one day they said that to you, that would be really oh, deeply concerning. That would be like, that would be another like, Here's a rip in the fabric of reality. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. uh, my, my day, I woke up today, today, it was Tuesday, I had some stuff I was going to do, I had a nice breakfast, I went to the <laughs> office, and then all of a sudden, the person I've known for nine years was like, I'm a different person now. My memory's been yeah. erased. <laughs> yeah. That's, uh, that's, that's a lot to unpack. For sure. Now, again, <laughs> in this case... She basically says, this is all a lie. This is some kind of nonsense. Get the fuck out of here. Mm -hmm. Which he does. Mm -hmm. Good In his mm -hmm. defense, or not defense, but good for him. He listened to a woman who said, get away from me. <laughs> like, <laughs> the uh, bar is low. The bar is extremely low. 
particularly in the year 1990. Um, So when he returns to the hotel, we have the scene that, um, like, so, like I said, up top, like, the critical reaction to this movie was pretty mixed. Most people didn't really think it was a very good movie. Like, movie critics didn't think it was a very good movie. Um, Mm -hmm. But most everyone pointed out this next scene in the hotel as being, like, not only the best scene in the movie, but perhaps one of the best scenes kind of, like, in uh, sci-fi cinema because of the kind of, like trippy nature of what is happening here. So hmm. so basically Quaid has struck out with Melina and is a bit at loose ends about what to do. Like there are no more breadcrumbs, there are no more clues that he's left himself. And so he comes back to the hotel and he, there's a knock at the door and it's a guy who identifies himself as Dr. Edgemar from Recall Corporation. And it even takes him a bit of a while to convince Quay to even open the door to him. When he does, Dr. Edgemar explains, like, hey, man, I know you've had, like, this really intense experience, but um, you are still back in the recall, recall office. It's still that very first day. Like, um, you are in the midst of a schizoid embolism, And even though all of this feels very real, um, it isn't real. Like, you're in your mind. You've gotten stuck in your mind, essentially. And my job is, I think he describes himself as like a built-in safety protocol to the implantation process that is designed to, like, activate when someone has gone too far, like, into Mm. the program or whatever. Mm Mm-hmm. And Quaid is extremely skeptical of this uh, kind of explanation of what seems to be happening. And then Lori shows up. She also is saying, like, I'm here because this is your vision, because that's how this can work. But I'm actually technically sitting in the recall corp office trying to help you. Um, Mm -hmm. And I'm asking you to please, like... Dr. Edgemar gives him a little red pill that he's supposed to take to kind of, quote-unquote, wake up back in reality in the recall corporation on Earth. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you have any questions about that? I mean, I don't get it, but I'm okay. Okay. So so he's meant to take this pill and, and... as Quaid says, he's like, well, if I'm in a dream state, if this is in my mind, what does it matter if I take this pill? Can't you just wake me up? Mm-hmm. And Dr. Edgemar is like, no, no, no. Like, if we just wake you up, you're going to have massive brain damage. You need to take this pill because it is like the symbolic representation that your mind needs to kind of restart itself, Recalibrate. to shut down yeah. and like come back online or whatever. And, you know, so that's quite, I actually was enjoying that as well from the kind of like, um, because it's very, very much the matrix, which will come out later, you know, like that kind of notion of like um, the red pill and the blue pill. 
and what leads right. you to the true reality and what leads you to the reality of your mind. So, you know, that's interesting. Now, um, Quaid is almost on the verge of doing this, of taking this pill, of accepting that he, like the, the past couple of days have just been a creation of his brain kind of freaking out. Mm-hmm. But then what happens? Well, then he all of a sudden shoots that guy in between the eyes and he's still got that pill in his mouth. Right. And the reason he shoots him is because he sees that Dr. Edgemar is sweating. Mm. So he infers from that. that. Yeah, he infers from that that he's lying. Because that, why would just a projection in your mind sweat? Like, basically. Oh, interesting. Okay. So, yeah, he shoots that guy directly between the eyes. He spits out the pill. Um, Lori, who is, of course, there in real life, because this is real life, um, starts, like, punching and kicking him. She manages to um, subdue him such that then the remaining thugs come in um, and, like, uh, put him in handcuffs and they start dragging him toward the elevators of the hotel whereupon as they are about to get into the elevators the elevators doors open to reveal Melina with a massive gun who is like shooting up everything and everyone um, quite a number of the thugs either disappear or get killed in that initial um, spray of Gunfire. This mm-hmm. then comes to the part of the movie that I, this is what made me think like, why didn't Sharon Stone end up having more of an action career? Because this fight between Melina and Lori is pretty good. Mm. I quite, I thought it was really good. And it looked like the two of them were doing a lot of the sequence themselves. Awesome. Yeah. Mm. Um, in the end, however, uh, as Melina and Lori are fighting, uh, this gives Quaid time to kind of get himself uh, organized so that even though he's got handcuffs on, he picks up one of the guns that's been left on the ground and then again shoots Lori dead between the eyes. Oof. Quite a lot to take in. Um, Melina then tells Quaid that uh, she's come back because Quato has requested to see him. Um, and so there's another, like, the, the thugs sort of come back. There's another chase sequence shootout where um, they first start in the hotel, then they go out into the street, then Melina and Quaid get into Benny's cab, and then there's a shootout between the cab and the car that the thugs are in. Mm-hmm. Um Melina and Quaid end up back at the last resort where there is a secret door that goes into a passage underground. That's where the two of them go. They get through that door and the people at last resort put a table in front of it and make it look as though nothing has happened so that when the thugs arrive, um, everyone is just like standing around quietly being like, what are you guys doing here? Um, (laughs) And in fact... It seems like the people at the last resort know that their job is to distract these thugs as long as they possibly can. 
Um, so as the thugs start shooting, everyone in this bar is also shooting guns. Um, and I think, like, is this when there's, like, a, a little woman who's in this bar crawl or bar club scene and does she have a big like machete she's wandering around with or is it a big gun <laughs> she uses there's something like that that happens yeah. um and so there's a big shootout in the uh, bar itself um mm. to which Cohagen calls Richter and is like um you can go ahead and stop doing that. And Richter's like, but why? I'm a psychotic, murderous dickhead. I want to keep shooting these people. And Cohagen is like, I've got a different plan in mind. And so he actually turns off all of the air going to that entire sector of the city. And this is something I don't know if I've mentioned yet before, but like the reason that Cohagen is in charge on Mars is because he has a mining company which is mining something called tribinium, which somehow results in him being the only person in the colony to be able to produce and supply air to people. Whoa. So that's really what this is all about, is like, because Cohagen, I guess for the most efficient way to say it is, Cohagen's air rights. Mm-hmm. Are exclusive. Like he is the only one who controls the air on Mars. And so he kind of dictates the terms of everything that happens on Mars. So he's like, don't worry about it, Richter. I'm going to kill them in a much more efficient way by just turning off the air to this whole part of the city. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, Quaid and Molina are underground in these various passageways and they are being brought to Quato's hideout. Um, so this is where this resistant group or terrorist group, whatever you want to call it, live. Benny has ended up with them because he came along with them on the shootout. So they get deeper and deeper, closer and closer to Quato's hideout. And when they're finally about to meet Quato, everyone's like, no, Benny, you can't come. We don't know you. Like, we can't trust you. But then he takes off this, like, arm prosthesis to reveal that his arm looks almost like um like a insect <laughs> leg or something mm-hmm. um and he's a mutant so that's the other thing again i we've not talked about this yet so in the mars colony there's a subsection of the population who are either referred to as mutants or freaks. Um, Mm -hmm. Most of them, other than Benny, are depicted as having, like, the the mutation or whatever it is, is, like, on their head. So it looks like almost as though their brain is exposed, kind of. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. um, It looks... I don't... And there's some backstory that someone mentions about how that's due to something that Cohagen did that was kind of shitty to begin with, like about contamination. Um, Mm. But what, so while Benny's mutation is purely physical, most of these mutants slash freaks seem to be because the, the mutation is to do with their brain. uh, They also mentioned that they're typically psychic. So Mm. that's one of their things. 
So that is why Quado wants to speak to Quaid because Quaid's memories from when he was Hauser have valuable information that Quado wants. And Quado is also able to access those memories because Quado is a freak. Got it. So that's why Quaid has been brought here. Mm, okay. Quado has yet to be revealed, but the main, the guy who's portrayed as seemingly kind of the main uh, resistance fighter is this guy called George. And George mm. explains to Quaid that um, the reason that they were interested in Hauser's memories is because um, Cohagen found alien artifacts in the depths of the mine that he is running. And George is like, Quado will be able to access those memories from you. So George is like explaining this as he's sort of like walking around and like turning around. So he's turned his back to Quaid and then something weird starts to happen and then do you remember this reveal of, like, who is Quato, where is Quato, what's going on? No. Oh, man. Remember. How can you <laughs> not remember this? This is, like, a major My reveal. My memory was wiped. My memory was wiped. I'm, an, I'm a different person. I can't help it. Well, now that we've discussed this, I need to call some sort of psychiatric facility <laughs> to help you with this. Um, so it turns out that Quato is like symbiotically attached to George. So George turns around and when he turns back around to face, um, Quaid, Quato is like coming out of his stomach. Oh. And sort of looks like the baby from dinosaurs. How can you not Maybe remember this? It looked so <laughs> gross. It looked so gross. I probably gross. wasn't paying attention. I probably just like, wasn't paying attention enough. To me, the grossest part about it, aside from all of it, was Quato's <laughs> little baby hands would, like, come out and, like, move around and want to, like, touch things. And I was like, oh, yeah. I don't like what this looks like at all. <laughs> um... But Quato is, like, supremely psychic. And so that's what he wants to do. He wants to look into Quaid's mind to find this information that is clearly so valuable. This doesn't take very long for Quato because he is such a proficient psychic, I guess. Um, what is revealed is that in this mine that is Cohagen's mine... It's not just any old alien artifact that was discovered. In fact, what was discovered was an alien reactor underground that is potentially a source of energy for the planet. And Cohagen wants to hide it because he, of course, controls all of the energy and stuff uh, on the mm -hmm. planet at the moment. So this is a big reveal but while Quato, George, and Quaid are kind of off in a separate room having this moment, outside, the various thugs that Cohagen um, is using on his behalf 
have busted into the hideout. They figured out where it was. And the reason they figured it out, unfortunately, is that Benny turns out to be a traitor. Even though he's a mutant, he is being paid by Cohagen. And so that's his whole thing. Can't trust nobody. Uh, The final bit of this is Benny to really like cement his treachery um, is that he ends up shooting Quato um, just before they take Melina and Quaid into custody. But as Quato Mm -hmm. is dying, he tells Quaid, he's like, you need to get that reactor started. That will change everything. So then... We get brought to Cohagen's office. And again, this is another kind of where the movie takes yet another turn. Because uh, Cohagen then reveals that this whole thing, this Hauser being mind wiped to become Quaid, to find Melina, to go speak to Quato, all this stuff, according to Cohagen. This was all part of an elaborate plan that he and Hauser set up together. Mm-hmm. And Quaid refuses to believe this. So to prove it, Cohagen plays a video recording of the two of them together. That, And this was what I wasn't sure. I At first I was like, oh no, this is some sort of fake out. That's not true. But by the end of this scene, I was like, oh, no, I think it is true. I think Hauser was not a nice man. And I think Hauser did seek out Melina initially as a way to infiltrate the resistance group. I, I don't he may have sort of genuinely cared for her when he was Hauser, but um, once that memory got erased and he became Quaid, it does seem like he became a different person, maybe a better person in some ways than whatever Hauser used to be like. Um, mm-hmm. Unfortunately, though, uh, Hauser on the video is like, I want my body back, buddy. So... Um, you and your little girlfriend are going to get mind wiped and I'm going to be put back into my body. So this goes into something that we've talked, I know we've talked about before in the context of this podcast, which is, as this posits, without your memories, you are not the same person. Like that memories are like essential to who you are. And what your personality is. Um, And I'm not sure. I don't know if I agree or disagree. But I think it's interesting that that is such a constant theme for such Mm -hmm. a lot of the stuff that we do. Like like what constitutes a person's personality and what do you need? Mm -hmm. You know, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, Needless to say, Quaid and Melina are then forcibly brought into a different room with two of these mind wiping machines and the plan is is that Hauser's memory is going to be restored and um Melina is going to be kind of wiped of her original personality to become Hauser's little wife or some such 
thing. Mm-hmm. They leave them, the doctors like set this all up and then they leave them alone in the room. This, I was like, this seems both unrealistic and terrible. Quaid manages to bust himself out of the weird like wrist locks that they have on the machine. And so his wrists are all bloody and he like frees himself. He frees Melina from the same machine and then they rush to underground again because Quaid is now explaining to her this vision that Quato had and the goal is to get the reactor underground started again. So the general thing here is that according to the vision that Quato had of Hauser's memories, the entire core of Mars is made up of ice And aliens, 500,000 years ago, created a reactor that, when it's in operation, will melt the ice and that will be released into the atmosphere. And then that will create an atmosphere on Mars. So then Mars will actually be inhabitable. Like, you don't need to live in domes. You don't need to... provide air air will just be there so that's now the task is to get this reactor to function needless to say in the lead up to this climax there's quite a lot of more shootouts more weird deaths more everything um this is when we get the bit where like as the thugs are trying to kill Quaid and Melina, Quaid seemingly comes out from behind a pillar and they all shoot at him. And then he starts laughing hysterically only to reveal that it's not really Quaid. It's his hologram uh, from the hollow watch he had a long time ago. Um, this is where Quaid and Richter fight in such a way that they end up on the elevator. And then as the elevator is going up, what happens to his arms? Chopped off. Yep. Totally chopped off. That's, that's your death, I guess. Um, (laughs) Finally, Quaid, Melina and Cohagen all end up in the center of the reactor at the same time. Um, And Cohagen is doing one last attempt to stop them from starting the reactor. Um, And in that process, he he has like a detonator or something. And um, the chamber where this start button for the reactor is, uh, he presses the detonator. There's an explosion. Um, All three of them start to be sucked out into space. Cohagen is the first to go. And we get... The next cool practical effect where when he when he's pulled out onto the surface of Mars, his face starts turning into like bubblegum, like expanding gross bubblegum yeah. and his eyes are bugging out. Um, this eventually also starts happening to both Quaid and Melina, who are also sucked out of the chamber but only just after, at the very final second, Quaid is able to start the reactor before he gets sucked out into the surface. So on the surface, um, we, we have a f- number of shots where it's going between all three of these 
clearly fake, like, faces of Quaid, Molina, and Cohagen expanding and expanding as they're being exposed to no atmosphere. It looks pretty bad. Yeah. Like, I don't mean that, I don't mean that the effect looks bad. I mean... No. I wouldn't like to experience this as no, 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 a living you. person. Um, and I'm almost, and I'm pretty sure that's not what actually would, what you would look like when you're exposed to the, like the surface of Mars. I think we've talked about this before, like, well, space, you would just freeze. You don't explode or anything, like you just freeze. Maybe Mars, you would sort of do this weird, like eye bugging out thing, but I feel like probably not. Um, As this is happening and the reactor's kicking off, There is chaos all over Mars. We get a lot of different shots of a lot of different parts of the city. The reactor starts to come in contact with this core of ice in the middle of Mars. And almost immediately, it starts to create an atmosphere just in time for Quaid and Molina to not die by head explosion, I guess. It looks like that's where they're going to, is head explosion, but I'm not sure. Um, And the end of the movie is such that this reactor is so powerful and so fast, the sky is blue over Mars, and there are multiple different shots of different members of the community looking out at this brand new day, this beautiful blue sky. Um, And then uh, Melina says, I can't believe it, it's like a dream. To which Quaid is like, maybe it is. They kiss, and that is the end of the movie. Mm-hmm. So, I guess, did you think it was a dream? Like, do you think the whole movie was a dream? See, I hate movies where that's ambiguous. I don't <laughs> like that. <laughs> that makes me frustrated. I don't know. I personally, I, really don't. I don't know either, but I personally don't want to have it be, it was all a dream. Like, I don't yeah, want I don't that, like that to be the ending. So, great. Yeah. We're in agreement there. So, <laughs> turning to yawns and eye rolls. And eye rolls in particular after this last scene, I think, have a particular kind of resonance of, like, just what could be happening to one's eyeballs at any moment. <laughs> um so for yawns, though, one yawn is, you know, this was gripping. I was glued to the tube. That's one yawn. Ten yawns okay. is like, I really, really struggled to care about this at all. Mm. Um, I would have to say for this one, it's probably like right in the middle for me. It wasn't. It wasn't gripping for me, but it also wasn't like, no, I don't care. I just was kind of uh, middle of the road. Definitely a little too long. I had to mm-hmm. do two sittings of it, and even still I didn't remember a lot of stuff. <laughs> um, so a little too long for me. Yeah, so like a five. Okay. See, I felt like time flew by for the most part. Oh. Um, so I will give it a two because then once I, because there was like one point where I had to go to the bathroom and I was like, oh, have I already watched? Like there was something kind of nuts, like only half an hour left or something. I was like, oh, wow. 
Um, and then, then that last half hour felt kind of long because I was just like, oh, now I'm aware of time passing. But um, <laughs> in general, I thought, wait, and of course, what's the running time on this? It's like one fifty-three or something. Yeah, so that does generally for me mean it's a bit long. So yeah. that's why I'm giving it a two. But overall, I thought yeah, like it kept things going fairly well. So I wasn't, you know, too in the weeds. In yeah. terms of eye rolls, one eye roll is like I bought into this world. It was fully realized. I don't. I, you know, I have no follow-up questions. And then 10 eye rolls is like, this is some of the schlockiest bullshit I've ever seen. And I, I, it takes me out of it. Mm. Well, like, I definitely have some follow-up questions. That is for sure. But <laughs> I don't know that it's the movie's fault necessarily, but, um, again, I feel like I would put it kind of right in the middle. Like, there were some maybe more schlocky moments with some of the effects, but I overall, like, um, I don't know that it was, like, very eye-rolly. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I'm inclined, again, to do a two for myself here hmm. because, no, on the one hand, I think they walked the line nicely of, like, there's nothing here that's, Super duper, like, let's have, like, flying cars and weird, right. like, animal or alien butlers. Or, like, you know, like, there's nothing right. like that. Um, so that was, Although I like, could have used a couple alien butlers. I might have I would have, I would have, I would have been open to the concept. Um, <laughs> but, so they stuck in the realm of the ones that I think often do best, which is, like, we have what we know to be our actual reality. And we're trying to like think about how to heighten that rather than like just completely make a fake world sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, And so it's like, okay, cool, got it. And so that's why I think I'm leaning toward two. Also because the, like the originality here, I'm trying to be like in 1990, some of, the effects, some of these ideas would have been a lot more original then than they've come to be now. And so that's also why I want to give it a bit, like I would, under normal circumstances, I might give something like this a five because I'm like, it's neither Uh a lot nor a little. It's fine. But because it's one of the first places we see some of these concepts, I'm moving it down to a two. So finally, did you like this and would you recommend it? I liked it fine. I didn't love it. Um, it was all right. Would I recommend it? Because it's so well known and because of the fact that you said it's like one of the, whatever it was you said at the beginning about it being like one of the best sci-fi or the most, whatever it was. Yeah. Um, I would recommend it just because it's like, yeah, it's well known. People know, like, sure, I'll say yeah. Um but I wouldn't necessarily recommend it effusively. (laughs) Sure. I mean, obviously, for me, this is a yes and yes situation. Mm -hmm. Yes, I liked this. 
Yes, I would recommend it. I would certainly say don't even bother with the 2012 remake with Colin Farrell. Mm -hmm. Just do this one. Um, And yeah, like there will be... Have you seen that one or you just know that it's bad? I don't think I have actually seen that one. But when I told people this week, like, you know, as my usual, everyone's always like, what are you watching this week? And I'm like, Total Recall. And they're like... Not the Colin Farrell one, right? Oh. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay, so that one must be bad. <laughs> like, no, I'm um, kind of intrigued. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I think especially if this, if you consider yourself even just, I would even say, even if you just think of yourself as an action movie fan, um, then this merits a look over from your eyes um, if you've somehow missed it. from your eyes. <laughs> yeah, just let it just wash over your, your eyes. eyes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Put your eyes on it if you've not seen it, if somehow something has happened where you've not run across this. Um, like, it fulfills a lot of different roles depending on the person who's watching. Like, if you're a science fiction person, that's there. If you're an action movie person, that's there. If you just like to kind of enjoy some of the tropiness of 80s and 90s movies, If you're a Sharon Stone person, she's there. If you're an Arnold person, he's there. (laughs) Correct. So presumably after those different... That does cover a lot of people. That's probably (laughs) almost like what? 5.8 billion of the people on the planet might describe themselves as one of those things. (laughs) And so if somehow you've missed this... Then get on to it. Check we hope it you enjoy it. Um, as always, it's been a pleasure to speak with you today. I am Sarah, and I'm here with Amy, and we will see you next week in space. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of See You Next Week in Space. This is a production by Amy and Sarah Walsh with artwork provided by Riley Brown. If you'd like to learn more about our show, please check us out at seeyounextweekinspace.com or follow us on Instagram at seeyounextweekinspace. Until the next one.